The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Elen Shonoskesu Zordan. Anasko Rita. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. Shit. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast where we look at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is my faithful cohort, William T. Thrasher. I like gold! That's right, we are talking about Austin Powers. No, we did that already. We are talking about Power Rangers, the 2017 film, finishing our look at the theatrical Power Rangers films released in the United States. Or uh, according to dre- the closing credits, Saban's Power Rangers. Yeah, you know, and I saw that on the poster. I can't quite tell if it says Saban's Power Rangers or not. But, I mean, they don't call it Hasbro's Transformers, do they? Maybe they should. Every time I've seen a Transformers movie in the theater, whenever the credit says based on the toys by Hasbro, people start laughing. <laughs> like they didn't know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it is a weird credit, but I mean, you're going to get, they've been working on a Monopoly movie for years. There's all kind of stuff uh, going on. So yeah, this is directed by Dean Israelite, who uh, from what I could tell had only directed one movie before Project Almanac, some sort of a found footage movie. Um, and, and, And that's an interesting sort of trend in that you get directors with not a lot of experience as their second or third movie. Getting these $100 million plus projects to do for whatever, because probably they're cheaper to work with and easier to control, I suppose. Um, produced by Haim Saban, Brian Casentini, Marty Bowen, Wick Godfrey. Screenplay by Josh Gattens. Off a story by Matt Sazama, Burke Sharpless, Michelle Mar- and Kieran Mulroney. Uh, based on the Power Rangers TV show by Haim Saban and Shukai, Shuki Levi. I mispronounce that every time. Originally based off the uh, TV show Super Sentai by the Toei Company. So, uh, starring Dakari Montgomery, Naomi Scott, R.J. Seiler, Becky G., Ludi Lynn, Bill Hader, Brian Cranston, and Elizabeth Banks. Music by Brian Tyler, Cinematography, Matthew J. Lloyd. Edited Martin Bernfeld and Dodie Dorn. And, um, you know, this one it came out in uh, 2017. This feels a, like it came out a decade ago. Doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I think some of the effects are good, but yeah, the, the tone is a problem, and we'll talk about that. Off a of budget... According to Box Office Mojo of $105 million, this only made $142 million worldwide. And you can usually, as a ballpark estimate, a lot of times budget and marketing can be the same. Or if not, maybe 50% of marketing is budget. So, I mean, this, this did not do what they wanted to do. I found an article in 2017 from Variety in which uh, the producer, Chaim Saban, said... They already have six movies planned out. We already have a six-movie arc. Oh, they clearly were setting up a, a major franchise with this. They were jumping. They were jumping straight to shared universe. And uh, when you look at the domestic gross of U.S. and Canada, where do you think this movie falls? Seventy seventh, thirty seventh. 
So huh. it, it did its best uh, in the United States and Canada, domestic gross of $85 million. So not quite $100 million, but but not bad, certainly, in a crowded year. So to give you an example, it did better than the Tom Cruise mummy movie that people have already forgot about. Um, and did better than the Oscar, uh, multiple Oscar winner, The Shape of Water, from Guillermo del Toro. Hmm. Even did better than Alien Covenant, although that's like the 20th Alien film or whatever it is. But movies that did better than it include Pitch Perfect 3, Cars 3, uh, King Kong Skull Island, and the number one movie of 2017 was Star Wars The Last Jedi. Huh. Followed, um, domestic gross, I mean, uh, followed by the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, oddly enough. Wow, I did not know that uh, the live-action Beauty and the Beast had done that well. Uh, domestically, it made five oh four million, and worldwide, it made. Why am I not getting these numbers? One point two billion. So, yeah. Anyhow, Power so Rangers twenty seventeen. Oh, you talk well. about the weird tone of this movie, and b- based on the trailers, I came up with this theory. And now that I've finally seen this movie, it seems to be confirmed. But the way this movie feels, if Power Rangers, as we know it, had existed in the late 60s slash early 70s, and it was given a gritty 90s reboot, this is the movie that we would have gotten in the 90s. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, it, and it has been, you know, a while since... The show has never stopped being on TV, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much been constantly in production, constantly being renewed. And actually in uh, 2009, I think it was, they got away with rebroadcasting the first season on uh, was it NBC, whatever network Disney owns back during the brief period where Disney owned the rights to it. They just rebroadcast the first season on Saturday mornings, but with like extra special effects, not better special effects extra special effects they just put extra flashes and lightning bolts on the screen uh well, disney owns abc it might have been on abc or oh, it ABC would have been family ABC. Or, or one of those but I, I, I didn't know they sort of goosed up the special effects um for power rangers it's sort of like they did with the old star trek and the old next generation uh, episodes for well, that reason was it they didn't improve they just put in more mm-hmm. yeah um trying to cover up the mat lines i guess i don't know yeah you know i, I saw the trailer for this in, in the theater and it does kind of a fake out because you're like, what is this? Is this based on some like young adult novel thing I don't know about? Like it, it just seemed pretty planned. It's all teen and, angst, and then suddenly they have superpowers, yeah. right? And um, in the trailer, it struck me as a weird combination. In the film, it's even weirder. Um, you know, they're playing a you know sort of Monday morning quarterback. Some people. Uh, I think some of the director or producers have theorized that, well, this should not have been PG-13. This was too dark. We should have made it PG. And I don't know if their PG-13 rating scares people away. I don't think people pay attention to the ratings because I've seen people bring five-year-olds to R-rated movies. Yeah, I feel like in general, people don't, except in the worst possible ways. But yeah, like there, there's no reason why this film needed to be this dark. Um I'm like, no, like, know who your audience is because this. I feel like this doesn't have the stuff that would make it nostalgic and fun for for older Power Rangers fans who are now adults and have kids of their own. But I feel like there's nothing in this movie for a kid to latch onto either. 
And yet, I enjoyed this more than the prior two Power Rangers movies. I think there's some good stuff in here. I think there's interesting acting. Uh, I well, also you, think this is pretentious and up its own ass quite a bit. Oh, oh yeah, and and I think and I think what it is, and and this is what kind of struck me is if if this was just a movie about some outcast kids coming together and finding strength in friendship uh, at this horrible school they've been dumped in. If it was just that, the material provided, I think, would make this a very compelling movie. I found myself having way more sympathy for these characters than I expected, and I loved seeing their chemistry on screen. However, if this was just an over-the-top superhero movie about some kids training to be superheroes, I think that would also be really good and enjoyable. However... When the movie about teen friendship and the movie about superheroes grind against each other, it just it makes for a horrible mishmash of a film. Right. Um, I and right off the beginning of the film, I felt like something was was wrong because you see it's kind of like dinosaurs and then it kind of fakes you out. Oh, there's actually Power Rangers on Earth at this time. And you don't know who these characters are. They're speaking in an alien language with subtitles. Which is a flourish um, this movie does not need. Yeah, and, and I'm someone that likes subtitles, but like right off the bat, it's sort of like, what the hell? Because the movie does not start with a text scroll, unlike the other ones, right? Uh, which I, I honestly expected we were going to see that. Yep. And there's so much going on with the, the dinosaurs and everything moving around and the weird look of these uh, old, old, old school Power Rangers, one of which is Zordon who becomes that floating head thing. Uh, you just can't tell what the hell is happening at all in this opening scene, really. there's it, it's, it's too much right off the bat. Had this been later in the film, maybe that would have worked better. But I, I was immediately turned off. Well, especially when, like when when this when this opening scene in the Cretaceous period during a mass extinction event, which might I point out, like Zordon helps to cause... Like, we, we see destruction everywhere, but there's even a line of dialogue where Zordon calls in a meteor strike from orbit, um, which is ironic because there's this big crystal in the background, which becomes a huge MacGuffin later. It, it means that in order to protect the source of life on Earth, Zordon was willing to perpetuate a mass extinction event. Yeah, where's that movie? Like, Zordon's fascist origin story. That'd be something. But yeah, and they're just, you know, they're, they're, the Green Ranger has betrayed the other Rangers. They start dying. Zordon's dying. So he takes the the crystal coins that are their power source and he like buries, he seals them in a rock and commands them to seek out people who are powerful and, and, and pure of heart. And, you know, the meteor strike happens. The Green Ranger fall, just falls into the ocean, which is like right by. We've never seen that ocean before. And then it just then it just cuts to the present day. I feel like so little of what's they're trying to set up in that opening really, really pays off. Or, or when it does, I think it's nearly an hour in the film to when these kids discover the cave and get their coins. And I mean, until they become Power Rangers, dear God, there's only like 30 minutes left in this two hour film. Well, I, I, I timed things. So we we are about 47 minutes into the movie before one of the characters transforms into a Power Ranger. And it's only for less than three seconds, I believe, we see them transformed. Uh, and then it is two hours in before they all transform and do Power Rangers stuff. 
So it's really just the last few minutes of the movie. Yeah, yeah. The last yeah. roughly half hour of this movie is when all the Power Rangers stuff happens. Um, and and I, I don't have many positive things to say about the original Power Rangers, particularly the first season. But every episode recaps their origin story in less than a minute. And that we <laughs> have to go through two hours of origin story in this movie, it seems like such a waste of time. And so we go off the bat to uh, Angel Grove, so they, their city is named the same, Whoopi, uh, and one of the characters, Jason Scott, who's the, kind of the football star, he does a prank where, um, I think he puts like a, a pig or something in the high school, he's trying to well, let animals loose at the school, and he's well, yeah, he, car. he and his friend are trying to kidnap the rival football team's mascot, which is this, uh, this, okay, so here's the deal, their mascot's a bull, and their team is called the Bulls, but that's clearly a cow, but then it's a it's there's a jacking off a bull joke because his best friend's like, oh, don't worry. I calmed it down. I milked it. It's like, wait a minute. How many udders was it? Oh, just one. Well, this is not a cow. And like, wow, that's a weird thing to start this movie with. It is. And that, you know, same joke was done 20 years ago in Kingpin. You know, you're absolutely right. And it was also done around the same time as Kingpin. There was that movie with Tim Allen and Kirstie Alley where they like they join an Amish farm. They do the exact same joke, and that was in the trailer. Yeah, I can picture that poster in my head. I don't remember what it what it's called, but you're right. Maybe um, it's best left forgotten. But and you know what's something so. so weird is that so that so that's you know Jason Scott who will become the Red Ranger and his best friend who I don't believe is ever named and who we never see again. Right. Uh, there is one kind of interesting shot where um, Jason steals the car, and it's kind of from a point of view of the seat behind him, and like the camera keeps on rotating around, or it's it's from the point of view of the inside of the car looking out the window as he's doing these uh, donuts, trying to get away from the cops. It's a pr- it's a pretty dynamic sh- like scene the way they just yeah. use that one camera rotating in the car. I'm sure there's probably some stuff. All it's a combination of choreographed driving but also a little bit of cgi um and actually i don't think they steal the car i think that's either his car or his friend's car because they do have keys for it Mm, i mean there's a big sort of setup of him getting chased by the police and like off the bat it's like what does this have to do with power rangers why even you have this like science fiction setup in the cenozoic era as we mentioned it's just very jarring and then it goes like a little further in time where he is you know now suspended from the team and he's in detention which is when uh, some of the kids start to meet each other he's also under house arrest but yeah because he got he gets into a horrible wreck during all that i almost wonder do you think his best friend died but then they thought that was too dark and they cut it out of the movie because that would explain why the best friend never Mm -hmm. shows up when by all accounts the best friend would probably be thrown into this remedial school as well um and the other thing is because I noticed, you know, there's a the movie makes a big deal about how he was a football star. He was going to write his own ticket with a big athletic scholarship. There were scouts interested in him. And then the whole town's turned against him. Now, I don't know how it works in Angel Grove, but fast rising student athletes can get away with with worse than what happened in this movie. Yeah, I didn't think what he did was that bad. Um, like, I think hmm. the only way the town turns against him is if he got his best friend killed. Right. Um, so one of the kids that he meets, as we see the really lengthy introductions to all these people before they become Power Rangers, is uh, Billy, who's played by R.G. Seiler, who um, 
it comes off as autistic. I don't think they use that word or the uh, spectrum, but they, they don't say autistic. But later on, when they're at the quarry, he flat out says that I am. He says I am on the spectrum, and when when Jason doesn't understand him, he he says, "Oh, well, that's a diagnosis." But then they get cut. Like some stuff starts happening before he can he can elaborate further. But so I I gotta give the movie props for just flat out stating that the character is autistic, and they give him like it did it didn't seem like and I will admit I'm not an expert in autism, but it didn't seem like a cloying or, or stereotypical like portrayal to me. It's just you know some stuff went over his head, but he was really smart and he had these neat kind of like stemming quirks, which I thought was nice. Yeah, and he mentions like he doesn't think like other people, and and, and but they don't, they don't dwell on it either, and they don't make it seem like a curse or something bad. It's just who he is, and uh, the actor that plays Billy, I think it's one of the more charismatic performances in the film. R.J. Seiler, um, I recognized him from he was on a two season Showtime show, uh, executive produced by Jim Carrey, called "I'm Dying Up Here," uh, about stand up comedians in the eighties. Um, in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And he plays the part of an up-and-coming young um, stand-up comic that a rival club is trying to woo him away and sort of make him into the next Richard Pryor. And the main um, stand-up comic place that they're at and the the manager of it is all based on, oh, gee, the comedy club that Pauly Shore's mom ran. Oh, the comedy store? Yes, comedy store. Hmm. So, so Siler and Montgomery, I really liked them on screen together. I thought they had great chemistry. I liked that bit where, you know, the, the asshole who I guess is supposed to be a stand in for both Bulk and Skull, but they don't have the courage of their convictions to just have Bulk and Skull in this movie, which is a shame because in a way they're kind of the heart of the original series. Uh, but I like, you know, I like Montgomery stepping up and defending, uh, and defending, uh, or like Jason stepping up and defending Billy. And and it just that that would be such a great movie. A down and out jock, down and out nerd come together. They're so good when we have this, and then the superhero stuff just interrupts it. Well, I mean, and talk about characters that have a past that they act like it's a terrible thing and it's not a big deal. Uh you have Kimberly is also in the detention, played by Naomi Scott. And um she's she's okay. But like her, she act. She has this big secret that she keeps on hiding from people until near the end of the movie. Well, except we already know what it what it is because yeah. when the detention starts, she leaves to use the restroom after getting a text and hiding in the restroom are her friends from her old school who announce that they're cutting her out of their life. Uh, and there's kind of a neat moment where they cut. There's a picture of all three of them and they cut her out and then stab it into the wall with with the scissors that they brought. So, you know, you're out a few bucks for the scissors, but they do like they do flat out in that scene. It undercuts the reveal later because in that scene, they do spell it out that that Kimberly circulated an incriminating photo that fucked up some people's lives. But or at I least mean, some relationships. Yeah, I just heard. I don't know. Like, I mean, certainly when we were in high school, Thrasher, there were not cell phones. But there were Polaroids. There there were Polaroids, but it's like, I'm sure nowadays, like, bad images of, of kids or whatever, or embarrassing images are going around, like, a zillion a day. Like, why yeah. would one be such a huge deal that it's this paralyzing secret? 
Well, I mean, it may. I mean, it, it could be common. Uh, I will admit, I don't know. And and yet, you know, it's 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 like anything that gets put out in the world, something will inexplicably become popular and get a lot of circulation. And I suspect that's what happened here. Yeah, something came a meme or something that could. Yeah, that could be the case. So you have these kids in detention, and it's kind of reminds you, you know, of the uh, John Hughes movie Breakfast Club. And in, as you mentioned, the, the, these characters are interesting enough with each other. Like, if they wanted to have these besotten uh, teenagers with, with problems and they become friends and get over their trauma, just remake Breakfast Club or call it something <laughs> different. Call it Brunch Club. I don't know. But why the hell? What is this? Uh, this is not like chocolate and peanut butter. Teen angst and Power Rangers. <laughs> I know. It, it's, it's strange because and I never thought I'd feel this way. But I was actually craving the saccharine, uh, aspirational tone of the original series. At least with the original series and, and the original movies that we were watching uh, the past few weeks, you can uh, listen to them at SequelCast2.com or look up SequelCast and Two and Friends on uh, your Apple Podcast app. Uh, that's what we call a plug, ladies and germs. Yeah, so, it you know, at least they didn't dwell on on it and they could kind of do it and move along. I don't know. Like, I think there's some middle ground because I did complain with the older movies that you had no uh, character development at all. And I had no idea who these characters were. And, and we watched two movies about them. Uh, but in this one, it's so much, it, it, we, we've talked about this a lot on the show before, but there's been so many movies where they look at the success of Lord of the Rings or the Matrix or the Marvel movies, right? And they say, we, we can't just have one movie be a standalone. This has to set up a 20-movie series. And then that first movie doesn't do so well, uh, whether it's the Guy Ritchie Keen Arthur movie that was mm. also supposed to be six films, or um, even the one I had mentioned earlier, uh, The Mummy uh, with Tom Cruise, that was supposed to be part of like a big um, universal monster movie revival where everything tied in. As was Dracula Untold, as was the uh, the Van Helsing movie from a few and, years ago, as was yes, Van Helsing. Helsing. <laughs> All universal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, they just keep on... Hollywood makes this mistake again and again and again and again. And, and what it results in is you get a, a movie that's like Basil Exposition from Austin Powers. Yeah, it, it's a movie that describes a film. It does not succeed at being a film. <laughs> but um, but there, there's some nice, there's a really nice interplay. So one thing that I think this movie does do better with the character of Billy than the original series is that his his whole thing was that he's 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 the nerd. Uh, that always expressed itself in the dumbest ways in the series. I like that this version of Billy Cranston has like real technical knowledge. There's this great thing where 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 he's like uh, Scott's like, oh yeah, you're under house arrest. I know how to bypass the your ankle monitor. And there's this neat scene where he goes over to he goes over to Jason goes over to Billy's house. Billy's mom immediately recognizes him and is so excited he's there. <laughs> That was kind of cute, but yeah, he uses a Faraday cage and 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 you know hacking a SIM card to to spoof the uh, ankle monitor so that they can together go out to the uh, to the gold mine slash quarry because Billy wants to do something out there and needs somebody to need somebody to drive him. As he said, he doesn't have a car; he has access to a car. <laughs> and it takes him a few times, but eventually the kids are able to uh, get into. 
this cave. Well, yeah, that he blows up. All everyone is inexplicably at the, at the quarry. He, Billy blows up a rock wall. There's like molten glass, or there's solidified glass behind it. They all get their power coins out of it. They all get superpowers when they go back to the quarry again at the exact same time and are demonstrating their ability to jump around and do cool stuff. Yeah, they find they find a cave. In the cave is a weird uh, spaceship with a transforming interior. Finally. Finally, we get uh, we get Alpha Five and uh, Zordon, and we should talk about Alpha Five. Yeah, Alpha Five is voiced by um, Bill Hader. Good choice, and it, it looks, you know, it's a modern version of Alpha Five from from the series. It, it looks less chunky, more streamlined, and the voice Bill Hader is doing is not trying to imitate Alpha Five. He does say "ay ay ay" a few times. I caught that. Well, but it sounds it, it is it does sound like just like Bill Hader's voice. He's just mm-hmm. just a little higher energy. Uh, he's riffing, but the thing the thing that about this this Alpha Five is I feel I feel like we 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 need a cute little character that you know kids can sympathize with. You know, something like E. T. Not E. T. But like E. T. You know. And then everyone looked at each other and said, "So E. T. Right? He looks like if E. T. was like a Disney animatronic. He looks like what that E. T. would look like with all the foam rubber stripped off." Yeah, um, and so he's a little creepy looking. I'll agree. And and the the jokes he's given, whether they're improvised or not, I don't really care. They have um, to be improvised. I, it sounds like it because they. They tend to be weird. They tend to be kind of dark. Like, it's not quite matching with the movie either. But then this movie's tone is all over the place. So I, I guess it sort of works. Yeah. If Rita gets the crystal, it'll be like 50,000 atom bombs going off all over your planet, which is a pretty grim image. Or, or like, a, you know, in one of their many training sequences, they're fighting the, these rock monster things. And they almost, uh, you know, they lose and they want to do it again. And he he goes, Alpha 5 goes, you know, those things can kill you, right? Oh, yeah. A lot of things like that. And then Brian Cranston as Zordon, instead of just a floating head in a tube, uh, I think the special effect to uh, to demonstrate him is really pretty neat. It looks a bit like those... Um, uh, those those pins that you stick your face into and it makes a mold of your face. Oh yeah, yeah. We we actually talked about that because that's a recurring motif in the X Men movies. We talked about that in the, uh, some previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um over. Like I got to say, I it's really successful. And just the fact that they do a little, they they work slightly harder to justify it in the original series in a way that works that. Alpha 5 managed to preserve Zordon's consciousness in the ship. So he's sort of like an AI. That's why he's this face coming out of the wall. And I also, I I do a full circle thing. I like that Brian Cranston is part of this movie because when he first uh, took up acting, one of his first gigs is he did voices for Monsters on Power Rangers. Right. And that there, you know, at, at this time, uh, this movie was coming out. I think Breaking Bad had just finished. and He was still bald. <laughs> He was still bald. Oh, yes. And and so, you know, Brian Cranston, him doing... That's a big get for Power Rangers, because you don't really have name people in this cast other than sort of Bill Hader as the voice of the robot. And uh, Elizabeth Banks is the bad guy, Rita Repulsa, um, who comes into the movie... I mean, she's in the intro, but she comes in really, really late, and then you only see her, like, in these five-second flashes where 
these well, longshoremen pick her up in a bucket of fish and she stabs one of them or whatever. You can't even tell what's going on. They really mute her violence. Well, you know, it's, it's weird because they've made her such a horror character. So I, I will give props to Elizabeth Banks. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's trying to recapture kind of the camp of the old character. Like she she has a clear idea in her head what this movie should be. And I think her conception is better than the movie we got because she's really playing it up. Um, but a weakness this movie has as far as the storytelling goes is that, you know, so she gets fished. Her remains, her mummified remains get fished out of the ocean the same night that uh, the Power Rangers find their power coins. These two events are not connected in any way. But, you know, it's after it, it took a mass extinction and human beings evolving for those kids to get the coins. And she just happens to be dredged out of the sea the same day and starts I starts going after gold. And um, and and the one. OK, it's fine. The town's got a gold mine. She can be after gold. But could she rob a few banks? I find it very disturbing that she is, among other things, stealing people's gold fillings. Um, the Nazis did that. That is an, that is an, that's a connection way too grim for this movie. Like, I don't want to be thinking about a real world atrocity while I'm watching Power Rangers. Yeah. And later there's a scene where she's at a jewelry store at the mall and she just starts like taking jewelry and, and, and gulping it down and just sort of eating it. Um, <laughs> and I guess kind of the more she steals or, or transmogrifies, it adds gold onto her staff, which eventually transforms into this Goldar monster that we don't see until the very end. Um, but I mean, so we have a lot with the Power Rangers. Uh, Zordon mentions that the kids need to be the Power Rangers. However, they don't get their suits right away and he doesn't have a lot of... Um, faith in them either so they spend a lot of time uh, dicking around well there's a lot of training montages which i got to admit i found kind of fun like it, there's no stakes whatsoever because they're fighting holographic reproductions of, of the putty monsters which are kind of a neat rock golem design like I, strangely enough these training montages got me amped up but they never really go anywhere because no matter how much they train they don't get any better at being power rangers and they don't do any power rangers stuff but then then, then that brings to mind what's the point yeah and then, and then alpha to sort of boost their their egos like they, like shows them shows them the zords which should be a really cool reveal but it's just really lackluster cuz they're just inert just in a cave Although I although uh, Zach uh, the Black Ranger, I do love that he immediately takes a Zord for a joyride in a way too short scene where he's just tearing up the landscape in, I guess presumably the Mastodon Zord, but they never say what animals they are, and it barely looks like a Mastodon. It just has a gun in the front, which I guess is analogous to a trunk, no tusks, but it has. Six legs for some reason, which is like, you know, the Zords automatically uh, con uh, conform themselves to take on the shape of the most powerful beings on the planet. These transmogrified in the Cretaceous period. Well, one, there were no mammals in the Cretaceous there, there, well, there were no mastodons in the Cretaceous period. Two, there were no six-legged anythings that weren't insects in the Cretaceous period. What the hell is it trying to mimic? I mean, there there was a Power Rangers series where they had like dinosaur things, but well, that like, was the original gonna, series. 
Oh, okay. So, I mean, if you're going to do that, just make it dinosaurs. Yeah, it's 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 ill-defined for a series that is so focused on having a different theme nearly every season. Whether it's, you know, like the Harry Potter rip-off Power Rangers version or, or whatever it is. You know, they, there's so many different ones they've done over the years. What do you think of the other two Rangers? You have uh, Becky G is Trini Kwan, the Yellow Ranger. All right. I wanted I wanted to like Trini Kwan, but her only character trait is her angst. Uh, like she she at least with the other characters, the actors are trying to give them something else, but she's just angsty from beginning to end. And the thing that that pisses me off. So I love I do love that the character Billy. They it is flat out stated that he is on the autism spectrum and that he, that it is an official diagnosis. Trini. They keep make I see everywhere people making a big deal that the character is, you know, LGBTQ. She's not. Nothing in this movie establishes her as gay, bi, queer, what have you. I all like they this movie plays it. If that's the intent for the character, this movie plays it so coy, they might not have even tried. And, you know, coming off of uh, Avengers Endgame which in one of the earliest scenes flat out has a gay guy talking about his dating life to see how coy this movie played. It just pisses me off. Well, that, that, good- scene, hmm? that scene in Avengers Endgame, I didn't like that scene uh, because, because it just felt so cheap. You're just shoving in a gay character for like two seconds when if you wanted more uh, gay or queer, whatever they call it now, representation. Um, you could have done it to a bigger character. You could have, there's not, a lot I agree. they could have done. I definitely agree with you there. I mean, if, if you really want that to have real impact, it needs to be one of the Avengers. It needs to be one of the, one of the heroes on this team. And this movie had that opportunity. This movie had the opportunity to flat out have one of the Rangers be LGBTQ, but they don't. They gloss over it so hard, it's like they didn't even try. Um, the fifth ranger, uh, Ludie Lynn, plays Zach Taylor, who's the black ranger. And I thought he was good. He had a lot of energy. To his, his, he was the only one that seemed to have fun uh, in the Zord, like you said, and, and as a power ranger. And he, his subplot about you know his mother at home is sick and he's a mama's boy. It, it's just like one or two scenes. Like you almost didn't need that. It's like his, his attitude was almost enough, I think, for his character. Well, he, one, like he gets giddy every time he gets to use the powers. Oh, he clearly loves having having the powers, and I do I do like that about him. I like that he's not angsty about being a Power Ranger at all. I actually I liked the stuff with his mother. I mean, it, the the dark, although like the 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 weird the sort of the dark implication of it is that he's not going to school. He's just leaving home. Like and he, it's it's so weird because like that's when he has his big confession moment around the campfire. You know, he talks about how. Um, he doesn't go to school because he's always worried when he comes back, his mom's going to be dead. But he's still leaving the house and hanging out in the quarry all day. Um, like, it's he has this weird tension between wanting to run away from his problems and wanting to be there from his, his mother, which kind of stays in the background. But I liked I liked seeing uh, I did like seeing their uh, dynamic. Uh, I do like that. Uh, I do like a kid's. Well, presumably a kid's film that doesn't shy away from the specter of death. Right. Um, 
So, I mean, as these rangers are training, uh, we talked uh, off mic before the show, there's another weird joke about, they talk about, oh, when you morph, you you change, and then one of the guys is like, I morph every morning in the shower. You know, like they have like a masturbation joke, and it's like, who the hell are they going for? Like, I don't mind jokes about that kind of stuff, but when, when a movie has a tone all over the place, and maybe it should be aiming towards kids, perhaps that's not the best thing to do. Um I think the the uh, first Michael Bay Transformers movie had like a jacking off joke or had you know something sort of similar. Yeah, the, are you masturbating, son? Yeah, th- that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I was like, well, that's going to be a fun car ride. People explaining that to their kids, but whatever. It, well, mm. well. They're, they're, speaking of humor, that was another thing. Is there's a bit where like Billy's like, oh, so 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 we're going to be superheroes. So are we going to be more like Spider Man or, or Iron Man? Which on the like, I I started out really liking that bit, and then I'm like, oh wait a minute, Spider Man and Iron Man, two movies I would rather be watching. Right, it um, that seemed a little pandering, but eventually, after all the training, it does turn out that Billy morphs into a Power Ranger for just about three seconds, and then it disappears. And I, I thought it was sort of funny. People were like, well, how did you do that, Billy? And he's like, oh, I I don't really know. Um, and that it happened so randomly and, and the way the suit just out of nowhere, uh, how it animates, how it forms on him, I, I thought was neat. Well, it's, it's kind of weird with the suits cause they, they, they seem to be trying to split the difference between like the original TV show suits, the suits from the first movie and Iron Man. Yeah, I could see the Iron Man stuff going on. Certainly. And- and there's such a CGI sheen on them, which sometimes makes them seem otherworldly, which is kind of neat. But other times just reminds me, oh, there's no one acting there. That's just CGI. <laughs> the uh, And also, so related to this, this is when a weird complication gets thrown into the plot. Because they make a couple of references to the morphing grid, which is a holdover from the original TV show and their attempt to sort of create some sort of weird techno-magic backstory to justify things happening on the show. So with when they fully morph, the morphing grid will fully activate, and apparently Alpha can use that to bring Zordon back to life. And so you find out that's why Zordon's really been riding them to, to learn how to morph. Not to save the planet, but to come back to life, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah. Like, I immediately lose all sympathy for him. Like, you could do both. You could save the planet and come back to life. Yeah, I don't know why they felt the need to introduce that. There's already so much going on. Like, it even takes forever to send Power Rangers on their first mission. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the other other odd thing. Is so so the big deal is it turns out that big crystal we saw in the Cretaceous period is the Zeo crystal, and that every life-sustaining planet in the universe has one of these crystals on it somewhere, and if the crystal is removed or destroyed, all life on the planet ends, which brings up some very interesting biological and theological questions, um, which, of course, the movie will not, answer, will not address, and I wouldn't expect them to. Um, but so the crystal is somewhere in Angel Grove, but no one knows where because the records were lost in that in that big battle um well billy it's not explained how but billy just gets a big conspiracy board and figures out where it is uh and where it is is buried under a crispy cream so later 
Rita starts like appearing to the Rangers in nightmares and visions, and uh, in some cases in in bedrooms and a really a weird scene, and and just like, oh well, one of you must know where it is. No idea how she knows that, and so she captures all the Rangers in a wrecking yard, um, threatens to kill them. Billy reveals where it is. Uh, and then she drowns Billy to death. Billy spends several scenes as a corpse being hauled around by the rest of the team. Right. It uh, That did surprise me. And yet when they brought him back uh, so quick, relatively quickly, it also takes away any stakes that happen from them killing a character. Yeah, and after yeah, because you think like when 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 they all are in the spaceship and are like you know well you know you know I've and and this is what catalyzes Billy's martyrdom is what catalyzes themselves to believe in each other as a team, which lets them morph and opens the morphing grid, and so Zordon instead of bringing himself back to life brings Billy back to life, which yeah has all the same problems as the resurrection from the first film, and then after but Zordon why why but like you brought him back to life well now you can come back to life too right no only one can be brought back why why is there this limitation on your magic space science? It comes out of nowhere it feels really forced uh, i I did uh, do a little bit of research on the fly and discovered that all the Krispy Kreme tie-ins to this movie uh, was not for naught because they did offer limited edition Power Rangers donuts at Krispy Kremes in the U.S. and Canada during the film's release. They say Krispy Kreme so often. And and it's so, and so here's the deal about product placement in movies. Product placement can, if done right, like for instance in E.T., can ground the film in a kind of reality. Um other times it just draws attention to itself in the worst way and makes you realize how hollow and artificial the film can be. This, I don't know where I stand on, on this, because like Krispy Kreme, it be, it's mentioned so often it becomes crash commercialism, but then they keep mentioning it and it almost, be, and it like starts to become funny to me. I, I, I don't like it. I think they, it is, you have a point in that they do it so much it becomes like bad, funny to bad to funny again. I, I am looking at these donuts, and I, I regret not getting them because it is a Krispy Kreme donut with chocolate icing on top, edible silver glitter, and huh. decorated with uh, a, a lightning belt sugar piece that's in the color of whatever your favorite ranger is. Huh. But this this is what sets the stage for the final battle. So, you know, Rita is... Uh, she. She uses all the molten gold uh, from the gold mine to recreate Goldar. So, you know, Goldar, we saw him in the first film. He's that 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 lion's that's that blue sphinx creature in the gold armor. Here, he's just like molt, a molten gold blob that has a anthropoid shape and wings, but he has no personality, no character. He has a credited voice actor, Fred Tadaskior, uh, but I don't think he. Like he says anything or even makes monster noises, like, and and it's it's a horrible look because I, I it's like they they had a good CGI molten gold effect, and clearly somebody said, oh the molten gold looks really good, just make the whole monster look like that. Yeah, I, I don't like how this thing looks either. My, my guess is maybe they originally recorded a voice and they didn't use it, but then still had to credit the guy. Oh, quite possibly, um, cause, yeah. Because that voice actor, uh, Fred Tedeschiore, uh, has done 
so much voiceover work over the years. He's he's really um, they wouldn't call him a household name, but you know some of the things he did um, include like Harvey Birdman and Ben Ten and uh, Back at the Barnyard, the Avengers cartoons. He's voicing Incredible Hulk a lot for different projects. Oh, uh, one aside before we get into the final battle. So early, when they first become Rangers and meet Zordon, Zordon explains to them the three rules of being a Power Ranger, uh, which uh, was like you you must uh, like you you must only you must only use your powers to like de- to to defend people. Um, you must never rule two is you must never escalate a battle unless your opponent forces you to, and like rule three is you must never reveal your identity. The last one seems arbitrary, and the first two sound like network notes. Yeah, not to mention if you're going to do that, that should be done, you know, probably earlier in the film when you're trying to get them to be Power Rangers or trying to convince them to, not at the lot. Like, oh, by the way, there's there's three rules. You should probably follow them. Um, it, but there is, you know, one moment that I think the film could have used more of in that the Power Rangers are in their Zords and they're charging towards battle and we get a stinger of the original theme song for a few brief notes. And it's, I'm like, the, it's the only real nod to the old series. Mm-hmm. And you see that, and it's like, okay, had they done some of this stuff, more of this kind of action with that sort of cheesy music, that could have been something. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, and so they're improbable swords that cause a lot of mayhem in Angel Grove. I will I will say this, like, there is a lot of, we see a lot of property damage in this, but I... I like that it's like it's a relatively small town. There's no skyscrapers. There's no giant radio towers. It's just like one and two story buildings. <laughs> it's almost like a suburban area. I kind of liked that. Right. Um, and this battle, I think, is over a bit too quickly, or maybe it just brings attention to itself because it's the only big kind of epic Power Rangers man and suit battle we get the whole film. Yeah, they they nearly get thrown because a like Goldar you know digs up a pit with the Zeo crystal at the bottom. Uh, you know he he manages to throw all the Rangers and their Zords into the pit. That's when they discover at the last second that they can turn into a giant robot, which leads. So I don't I don't like it when internet fans like write movies or have any influence on the movie making process. And this, when they first come out in the Zords, it feels like a nod to, it feels like a nod to the internet because like they're, they all transform, but they're not all in one cockpit. They're each in their original cockpit, which is sticking out of whatever part of the robot their Zord turned into. And there's a joke about how they have to coordinate their actions and they don't know who's controlling what part of the robot, which has always been the joke about mecha series in fandom it just slows this battle down and comes off as bad comedy. I kind of like that scene. I thought that was a little cute because it's their first time doing this and they don't really know what they're doing. Um, I thought that was okay, but... But, I mean, they do destroy Goldar. Uh, Rita comes out of... Gold- Rita has merged with Goldar. She comes out and gives this whole speech about, you think I'm the only one who will come for this crystal? There will be others. Well, they've had 65 million years to come after this crystal. If they haven't done it now, I don't know why they're going to. But, so, when when uh, Jason, early in the movie, when Jason first defends Billy from a bully, he just kind of backhand slaps the bully. So when Rita jumps to attack the Zord, he just backhand slaps Rita, 
which in, into outer space. And yeah. we see we see her freeze to death in the vacuum of space, which is a pretty, again, a pretty grim image. The whole time I'm like, oh, she's going to land on the moon and is going to find her moon base. And that's going to be part of the sequel setup. No, she just dies frozen in space. Oh, and after this, um, I was looking up, after this movie was a bit of a financial disappointment, Saban sold off the rights to Power Rangers to Hasbro. Huh. And Hasbro might be working on a sequel, I don't know, but I found that interesting that, you know, Saban had Power Rangers, they created it in the first place, they sold it to Disney at one point, and they got it back, now they sold it to Hasbro, so... Well, maybe that maybe that's their plan. You know, sell, sell it to somebody when it's hot, then buy it when the new owners mess it up, <laughs> and then just revive the brand. That'll be their that'll be their their weird cycle. It's you know what it's like. It's like a a guy I used to work for in Savannah, Georgia, where that's what he would do. He would start a pizza place, build it up, sell it to somebody, live on those proceeds for a year or two, then. Because the new owners would end up tanking the business, buy it back from whoever currently owned it, build it up again. And that that was the way he lived his life. I feel like uh, Saban's doing the same thing. <laughs> wow. I mean, I guess it worked for that guy, right? If he could keep on doing it. it hey, it kept, it kept us college students in cheap uh, hangover pizza, so it worked out pretty well for me anyway. Certainly. Um, all right. So... The Power Rangers, you know, they wrap they wrap things up. They're they people take photos of the Zord, which does a dumb little dance. Uh, uh, they all, you know, they go home. They live their lives, um, and yeah, everything just kind of like you know wraps everything just kind of like wraps up. They're all they're all friends at this remedial school. Um, there's a little bit of credits, and then we get one more a really disappointing mid credit sequence where. Um, the guy in the detention hall is taking roll call and is like, and uh, new new student, Tommy, Tommy Oliver, Tommy Oliver, uh, Tommy Oliver. And we just see an empty chair with a green varsity jacket draped over it. Then we see a locker explode. I'm like, oh, shit, we're going to see Tommy Oliver. No, turns out that's just another one of Billy's explosives, which that's why he's in detention. He accidentally blew up his locker at his old school. And it just happens again. And we even hear Billy going, sorry, sorry, that was me. Like don't fuck, don't fucking tease the Green Ranger and show us an explosion and have it not be the Green Ranger. I did not stay to watch that sequence, but now I'm glad I didn't because you just described it to me. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, overall, this uh, Power Rangers movie from 2017, I'll give a sequel no to. I like it. Never agrees in a tone. I think some of the acting is good, um, but it, it, it's too little, too late. By the time the big you know scene sort of happens. Uh, if they do a second one with the same cast or even some of the same cast, um, now that they've done all the setup, I hope they can get to the point and have a more uh, fun story for the heroes to go on. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to give it a, a sequel. No, it just it it's too it's trying to be too many movies. None of them like, and they're all competing with each other in very unsatisfying ways. And I've, I've aired my grievances, but I do kind of want to go out on a high note. There's and this I think all comes down to Bill Hader. Whether this was improvised, oh excuse me, or something written into the script um, uh, by uh, John Gattins. But when when they meet when they first meet Alpha Five and they ask him like how long the ship's been buried in, in rubble, um, he says I don't know. Uh, is is it Monday? Yeah, it's Monday. Oh, well then sixty five million years. I laughed out loud when I heard that. <laughs> 
Good. Yeah. Um, Look at his ghoulish, glowing yellow eyes. Yep, he has some fun zeners in there. Um, so, what do you want to do for pitch a sequel? Uh, okay, so so my my uh, pitch a sequel. If I've got to do, if I've got to do a sequel based on this, I'm going to try to to eat my cake and have it too. Where the sequel the sequel is going to begin with all the Power Rangers are ready to graduate and go to college, so they can't stay there being the Power Rangers. So, in the very opening scene is them transferring their powers to the next generation of Power Rangers. Um, and this movie will be nothing but wall-to-wall Power Rangers zaniness. So these new kids we've never seen before, they all they get their Power Rangers powers, they have no trouble morphing, and since the Zeo Crystal is exposed, and that that's a big something, so... Like, everyone can see the Zeo crystal in the pit, and I don't know about you, but humans are going to fuck with that crystal. This movie won't be about that. Um, but uh, essentially, one after the other, uh, every series villains from the original run of Power Rangers shows up to come after that that crystal, and we see them get them and their henchmen get trounced by the new generation of Power Rangers again and again and again. And every time they do, their Zords upgrade and turn into a new creature, and we see them turn into a new version of every Zord that they've ever had in the series. And finally, in the end, the villains realize, oh, well, why don't we all just team up? So the villains merge all their moon bases into one big moon base, and we get the ultimate battle royale where Angel Grove is just decimated by like an army of giant kaiju sized monsters um, and this is just movie it's, it's going to have no fat all flavor it's just going to be wall to wall big budget Power Rangers craziness there will be a bulk and skull there will be that same broad humor we'll dump all the angst we'll try to bring back some of that aspirational tone uh, and what the hell because I loved him in this movie Bill Hader and uh, Brian Cranston will be back there you go. If I was doing a sequel. I just knocked over my microphone. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, if I was doing a Power Rangers uh, sequel to this, I think I would do a prequel and um, maybe Ooh. have it lead up to that prequel scene that opens this film. That's intriguing. Yeah, so you, you have it on earth with the dinosaurs and sort of their portrayal by the green ranger who the green ranger in this version is the Rita repulsa and uh, you, you sort of focus on that and you would um have kind of a hint there of the power rangers go back even further than the crustaceous period so they go back all the way to the cambrian explosion yeah, they go, they go back to, um, in, in some uh, flashback sequence, you would see that Power Rangers are like these five different colored, like, amoeba in the primordial ooze <laughs> that forms Earth. So, and it would be called Power Rangers Dino Crisis. Okay, <laughs> I like the use of Dino Crisis. Oh, but, uh, speaking of uh, crises, I, I made an arrangement... So, um, uh, Haim Saban and Shukai Le- uh, Levi, or Levi, uh, they're not the only ones who have attempted to profit, uh, and profit well off of Power Rangers. A lot of people don't know this, but Shecky Spielberg, a uh, Spielboy, uh, tried his hand, uh, at doing a Sentai series. Oh, did he? Is he, uh, do we have him on the line? 
In fact, yes, we do. I have uh, just finished auto-dialing him here. We're tuning him in now. Hi, hi, how you doing, Trasha? We're talking about uh, Power Puff Puffs. Well, I know that's what you that's what you called your version. Yeah, so uh, the TV show, uh, Power Rangers, uh, it was okay. So what I did was uh, I said, I'll make mine Power Puff Puffs. I took out five balls of cotton. I uh, painted them whatever whatever paints I had in the garage and put them on strings and wiggled them around in front of a white piece of paper. I thought I could do blue screen, but I, I decided to do my own version, white screen. Which is, I believe, a special effect technique you still use today. That's right. Unfortunately, I don't know how to use a computer, so uh, we could not put special effects behind it. So it was just wiggling painted cotton balls in front of the screen. And what's crazy is that, that uh, Power Puff Puffs, that led to your first three-way lawsuit, because not only were you sued by the creators of Power Rangers, you were also sued by the Cartoon Network, and you were sued by the producers of the uh, Dragon Quest video games. That's right, yes. So lawsuits from Japan and the United States and Canada was quite a lot. However, after all that, I said, hmm, how can I do this? And so I, I made a, a quickly did a sequel, Power Puff Puffs, lawsuit action, initiate. And I just filmed the, the, my Power Puff Puffs wiggling above each page of the deposition from the lawsuit. And you, you showed the entire deposition. So, you know, you, you literally turned that book into a movie. I did, yeah. And uh, in fact, some of my fans today, they go through the DVD version. And uh, go scene by scene with the pause button to read what was in the deposition. So it's, it's a tragic, tragic story. Which is weird because your audio commentary track is just you reading the deposition. That's right. But some people, they said, I want to do it in my own voice. Uh, I can do it better than Shecky can. And who am I to stop them? And, well, and, I mean, Shecky Spielberg, you could sue them for, for uh, trying to pirate your deposition. I could, I could. But so... Uh, that was several years ago. All the lawsuits kind of got settled. And then uh, this new Power Rangers comes up. So I says, oh, time for more Power Puff Puffs, forgetting that I had been sued before. So I got sued a second time by all three of those companies, including Square Enix, for taking the, the Puff Puff phrase from their video games. <laughs> now, I thought uh, that's like a double jeopardy. I thought you couldn't be, well, I guess you can't be charged for the same thing twice, but you can be sued for the same thing twice. Correct, because I said, well, technically, uh, they did not invent the word power of puff, so I'm free to use it as I like. I never said I was a legal genius. Apparently, I'm not. I landed in court again. So none of this footage has ever been seen. Now, and it was supposed to be the first film in a 27-part film series. Uh, what are your future plans for that series? Is it going to happen? Uh, because of the lawsuits, I cannot legally speak about it. However, I'll say this much. The Power Puff Puffs were cotton balls. Where did those cotton balls come from? A bag of cotton. Noodle on that one, Thrasher. I will, I will. I might write some uh, some speculative fan fiction exploring that. Thank you very much, Shecky. Uh, thank you. Any words of wisdom to leave us with? If you're going to get sued, don't get sued three times by three different companies. <laughs> Words to take to the grave. All righty, thank you, Shecky. Man, that Shecky Spielboy, he's uh, he's quite quite the character. 
And uh, I believe that brings us up to what you're watching. Yes, yes, it does. All right, so what what I've been watching, I watched an really fun documentary. Uh, I watched Bathtubs Over Broadway. Have you heard of this? No. Okay, so um, it's it's a documentary. It's it's kind of about a few different things at once, but it follows around Steve Young, who uh, was a writer and producer on uh, the, the Late Show with David Letterman, uh, like all the way up until it was canceled. And I think this this documentary was filmed, I think, during that final season. And the short of it is that for for one of you know uh, Dave's weird like a weird record segment he had found a record of music from an old industrial musical and if you want to know what an industrial musical is if you've ever seen Mystery Science Theater 3000 and there's inexplicably they show a short that's like a person singing about a car or a blender or telephones that's an industrial musical they were produced by a number of american industries to either show at their own conferences or to promote things to investors um and Steve Young ended up started personally collecting recordings of these industrial musicals and seeking out the people who made them because he discovered that one of his favorite ones, which was called like the bathtubs are coming, was written by the people who did the music for Fiddler on the Roof. And he discovered that lots of Broadway luminaries were when they weren't make, doing shows on Broadway, were getting paid big bucks to write and choreograph these musicals. And it follows him as he builds his collection. It follows him as he tracks down actors and performers who appeared in the musicals, the survivors who produced them uh, and and directed them and wrote them. And it really is kind of fun seeing these all these elements get brought together. They don't dig too deep, unfortunately, uh, into the history of it, although apparently he wrote a book about it that might go into much more detail I'm probably going to track down um but what's really touching is that you know he attends a funeral of one of the people who wrote these industrial musicals and he also uh he he also uh does a live performance of of this the song the bathroom song which is a pretty fun song that that has a lot of uh unintentional double double entendres in it with the woman who originally sang in the musical but the documentary ends um with a musical number written choreographed and starring all the people he found who used to work on these these industrial musicals and it is so touching kind of seeing them all go out for one last ride and sing an unironic song that's upbeat and about sort of American, uh, the the old American can-do attitude. Wow, that's pretty uh, ambitious. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, uh, it's it's available. It's available streaming. Uh, it's uh, it's written by uh, David uh, Wisenant. Uh, it is uh, directed and produced by him. Uh, it's also, it's written by... Ozzy Inguenzo and uh, David Wisenot, uh Bathtubs Over Broadway. Definitely check this out, especially if you're into that 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 weird era of of America, the the this, the fifties and sixties that gave us these industrial musicals. What I was watching was a, also a documentary. It's a four part uh, documentary called Conversations with a Killer: The Ted Bundy Tapes. Oh, directed by Joe Berlinger, and um, I didn't know a whole lot about Ted Bundy. The, the kind of weird thing is the guy who did these documentaries also directed a live-action um, movie 
about Ted Bundy that also came out this year um, hmm. with Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy. But but this one is a documentary. It A lot of it's based off of interview tapes from um, a journalist who was able to talk to Ted Bundy who didn't release these tapes for years. So you hear a lot of him in his own words. And I, I, what I find interesting is uh, Bundy killed so many women in so many different states and that with it, maybe because of the technology at the time, these different police departments took way too long to connect the dots or even talk to each other. Mm. So you have these very similar uh, MO, uh, the way the women were killed, um, always around college campuses, right? All similar age, similar types. And, uh, and one of the, I found one of the more disturbing interviews is they talked to a woman that Ten Buddy captured, but she actually fought him off and got away. Oh. And there weren't that many of those. So they, they certainly did their research. Um, it's four episodes, uh, so an hour piece, so it's about four hours total. So it's pretty good. Of course, it's disturbing because uh, of the subject matter. Conversations with the killer of the Ted Bundy tapes. And it was made for uh, Netflix. Hmm. I might have to check that out the next time I'm in a documentary mood. Yeah, and the the fictionalized movie he did of it was called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. Um, in which uh, Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy. So, are we ready to announce uh, what we're going to be covering next on Sequel Cast 2? Yeah, so the next uh, month and change, we're going to look at Death Wish. That's Shall right, we... Pelle. Yeah, all six films which are available in the U.S. streaming on Amazon Prime. So that means uh, not just Death Wish, but Death Wish, Death Wish 2, Death Wish 3, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, <laughs> Death Wish 5... I think it's like face. I'm trying to do this in memory. I think it's like face of death or something of something of death. And then the remake with Bruce Willis just called Death Wish. Oh, well, that's that. I guess that's going to be the longest series we've done on sequel cast two. on sequel cast two. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah, the only, I think the only thing that beats it is in the original sequel cast when we did saw. Hmm. Star Trek. Oh, yeah, if you count the old and the new movies, then, yeah, I guess Star Trek would be longer. But, yeah, it's one of the longer ones. It's been a while, but these uh, these movies are mercifully shorter. And um, that what I found interesting about watching these movies recently is it starts off as, as pretty grounded, and then they slowly get more and more ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's one it's one of those movies. I like Die Hard. It loses touch with its core concept and its and its and its roots. <laughs> but we'll save that for the next episode. Right. Uh, and it's just um, really something with uh, Death Wish where. You, it's it's fun noticing what the uh, the the criminals in the movie. A lot of them later became famous actors. Yeah, we're we're gonna have a lot to say about Jeff Goldblum when his uh, when his uh, infamous scene happens. It's there's gonna be some dark stuff. Uh, we'll just put that out oh, there. Very very dark. Uh, so 
Yeah, Death Wish. As the poster for Death Wish 2 said, Bronson's loose again. <laughs> oh, boy. Bronson unbound, Pally. Tame the witch from Death Wish. I don't know, that sounds more like Bob Dylan or something. I got a Death Wish. Yes. Actually, I would I would pay to hear him sing a recap of all those movies. God. You know, looking at this poster, I wonder if Death Wish was an inspiration for um, for Judge Dredd. Because one of these posters says, Vigilante, city style, judge, jury, and executioner. I, I would say there's a good chance that that's true because Judge Dredd is originally conceived was in large part a satire of of American uh, vigilante and law enforcement uh, cliches. I mean the ori- I mean the original Judge Dredd, it, it, like the whole the whole premise is like, okay, what if law enforcement officers were legally empowered to do all the crazy shit they do in movies, <laughs> and also had Batman gadgets? Oh, okay, so that makes sense. Very good. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Our theme song is performed by Mark with the C. Check him out at markwiththec.com. Website is sequelcast2.com. Uh, leave a review of the show on the Apple Podcast app. Just look up Sequelcast 2 and Friends. So, oh, I, I'm just looking and I found they made a Death Wish 3 uh, computer game for the Spectrum in the UK by Sierra Adventures no it's um, it looks like a shitty kind of like action <laughs> I have to I'll have to download this I think this we're gonna have to game. emulate that yeah but we should also emulate part of this uh, Power Rangers movie first sure um, so that's right so we're gonna do our scene that's what you're getting at it took me a minute <laughs> yeah, this scene, just to set it up, this is Kimberly Hart, the Pink Ranger, and Jason Lee Scott, uh, the uh, the Red Ranger. This is them meeting at the quarry, uh, I believe, shortly before they end up digging the uh, the coins out of the wall. Yeah, and uh, I think as you mentioned for this whole series, it's really hard to find scenes just with like one or two people in them. Because there's so many scenes with all the Power Rangers talking to each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and strangely enough, it's like the handful of scenes where it is, uh, uh, that, that, where it is just the, the, like two characters talking, we couldn't find many of those transcribed. So this was, this was the best piece of dialogue that fit our parameters and, we could find. Who do you want to be? Uh, I'll go ahead and I'll do Kimberly. Okay. So, uh, let's begin the scene. Okay. My house is on the other side of this mountain. I hack these trails sometimes to clear my head and I stare down at Angel Grove and wonder, how such a small crap town could cause me such misery. <laughs> Are that funny to you? No, I I just feel the same way. Yeah, Jason Scott, star quarterback, crashes and burns, destroys his career and destroys our season. Go Tigers! Yeah, now I walk around town and everyone's looking at me like I ran over their dog. <laughs> what a weird line. How do you even do with that? Again, I think I think he killed his friend in that car wreck, and the movie just doesn't want to admit that. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe we'll get an R-rated or unrated cut of this somewhere. <laughs> down the Release line. the Snyder cut of Power Rangers. <laughs> the Snyder cut of Power Rangers. Uh, 
Okay. So, um, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. <laughs> and this is Thrasher. Same. It's somewhere between the larval stage and full maturity. Eh, it's difficult to explain. <laughs> Shame, everybody tripping, she be getting with the campaign Celebration, bitches, time to